Welcome to Murder Bucket, the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. I'm your host, Hannah. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. Good evening, everyone. It's Tuesday. And what does that mean? That means tonight is another episode of the Cold Case Road Trip. We are on our third and fourth stop. Tonight, we will be traveling to Iowa and Vermont, and it is going to be two really good ones. But first, let's just go ahead and do our week slash weekend recap. My week and weekend have been really great. My in-laws got in on Friday, and we've been able to travel down to Solomon's Island on Saturday and check out their Maritime Museum, which I didn't know, but they had otters and jellyfish and stingrays and a whole bunch of other things that my one-year-old has actually never seen, so it was really cute just to see how excited she was. Then we did church on Sunday. We've kind of just been hanging out, eating some good food. It's been a little cold and gloomy here in Maryland, but I really hope that spring is around the corner because I need it. I need that warm weather. I need to be able to wear my sandals. Now, some of you shared your goods and your bads of the week and told me that I could share them with all of you guys. So here goes. I've got Straight Up Evil Podcast said their bad of the week was that their kids woke them up on 445 on Saturday and apparently zero amount of coffee helped them. I'm really sorry. My child does that sometimes too. But the good of their week is that they got all their research done for their next episode and they had a great time playing with their children outside. That is always good. Great time playing with your kids. That's the best thing you can do. Now, looks like the spooky hour, good thing of their week, they got a brand new mattress. Mattresses, good, because, well, you need sleep and you got to have something good to sleep on. But their bad is in their province, they're still in restriction and apparently they're losing their mind. But how can you really lose your mind if you never had one spooky hour? Now, Alex's weekend from Weird Distractions, their low was they were sore with helping a friend's mom move out of their house, but their high was getting to spend the weekend seeing people for once, and they got to celebrate their co-host Christy's birthday. Happy birthday, Christy! Woo-woo! Now, Murderific True Crime Podcast's good of the week was they got another episode researched, written, recorded, edited and it's already out and live so go check it out now i don't see how this is bad but it might be to some people but their bad of the week is that it is apparently still snowing in maine i like snow sometimes i don't like snow sometimes so right now it's good because it's in maine and it's not here in maryland but it's bad because it's where you are Sorry. Death and Decay podcast shared on Instagram that they are healthy, they have a good job, they love their family, and they're just all around blessed. And I say that's 100% great. 
Let's go ahead and get started on the third and fourth stop of the cold case road trip. Do you have your snacks? Because I have mine. All right, here goes nothing. Iowa. Valerie Lynn Klosowowski. I'm sorry if I pronounced that wrong. I did try to look it up, but I could not figure out the pronunciation. She went out with a friend to the swimming pool on June 13th, 1971, and was supposed to be back at home by 9 p.m., but she never arrived. Her father filed a missing persons report with the Waverly Police Department around 10 p.m. Two days later, after she went missing, two boys discovered her body on a creek bank just three miles west of Denver, Iowa, where she was nude from the waist down and her shirt was pulled up around her shoulders. She was just 14 years old. The autopsy later revealed that she had been strangled with such force that her larynx was fractured. It is believed that she died sometime on the evening of June 13th. The Brimmer County Sheriff's Office, Waverly Police, and Iowa Bureau of Criminal Investigation sent members of its auxiliary force to interview families in the area near where her body was found. More than 100 households were canvassed in an attempt to find any information about her activities the night that she disappeared. She was described by her family and friends as a quiet but friendly person and was often seen hanging out with the neighborhood children. She was athletic and was always on the go. She was also a gifted guitarist, pianist, and singer, and often wrote her own songs and poetry. She had an older and a younger sister. Julie Ann Benning vanished the day after Thanksgiving on November 28, 1975, in Waverly, Iowa. Julie lived on a farm with her parents and her four younger sisters. She recently graduated from Plainville High School in the spring. With no money for college, she found a job in Waverly. Family and friends described her as a bright, beautiful, spunky, and ambitious girl. She loved meeting new people. She designed and sewed her own dresses, painted landscapes, and portraits. There are some articles that say that she did not show up for work and was reportedly seen getting into a car, while other articles say that she left work under mysterious circumstances. Her father, Lowell Benning, reported her missing to the police chief, Clarence Wickham. He requested that police contact the local media, but the police at the time weren't convinced that foul play was involved, so they asked him to do it. He went straight to newspapers and radio stations in person, asking them to alert the public of his daughter's disappearance. Local radio station KWWL reported the story and an agent from the Iowa Bureau of Criminal Investigation was sent to help the family. On December 12, 1975, it was Julia's 19th birthday, and with no evidence or body, there would be no celebration. As 1975 came to a close, the search for Julia produced no clues to her whereabouts, even though it was extended to other states. That wasn't until March 18th of 1976 when a Butler County Road maintenance worker found her nude and decomposed body in a ditch along a country road east of Shell Rock, Iowa. Her clothes were nowhere to be found. A news release the next day by Butler County, Bremer County Sheriff's Office, Iowa State Patrol, 
an Iowa Bureau of Criminal Investigation, reported that the autopsy performed at Allen Memorial Hospital in Waterloo was inconclusive. However, Butler County Attorney General Gene Shepard released a statement on April 12, 1976, saying that the autopsy report on the body of Julie Ann Benning established that her death was due to homicidal violence caused by injury to the throat area. Marie Peake went missing after she was last seen by classmates going shopping for last-minute school supplies on Monday, September 6, 1976. She was a sophomore at Wartburg College in Waverly, majoring in journalism. Her friends and roommates reported her missing in the early morning of September 7th. Her nude body was found in a ditch a quarter mile north of the Waverly city limits at around 10.40 a.m. on September 8th. And like Julia, her clothes were never found. The autopsy showed that Marie had been sexually assaulted and died from strangulation. Her neck was also broken. At the end of 1975, Marie was a victim in a bizarre sex and exhortation scheme operating in Manson City, Iowa. A used car salesman exploited up to 15 women in Iowa by blackmailing them with the nude photos that he forced them into taking. He would tell each woman that he was a powerful mafia member and would harm them if they did not submit to him sexually. Marie was a part of the operation that helped put the salesman behind bars. Many people believe that he had her killed in retaliation. There were many articles that stated two women fell in love with him and at least one had threatened Marie before her death. After Marie's body was found, the Bremer County authorities were consulting with the FBI criminologists to figure out if these murders were connected. The objective was to build a psychological criminal profile of the person or persons who may have committed the crimes. Around the time of the one-year anniversary of Julie Benning's murder, the Des Moines Register reported that the local authorities were convinced that Julie and Marie were killed by the same person. One of the profiles that the FBI developed was called the Waverly Slayer. Officials disinterred Marie's remains on May 7th of 2010 and sent them to the state medical examiner's office in Anarchy for re-examination. This was in hopes of discovering additional evidence. On July 22nd of 2010, the detectives reported that Marie's coffin was too broken down and that her body was too deteriorated to preserve her killer's DNA. In October of 2014, Marie's sister Meredith told Iowa Cold Cases that she and her family believed her sister knew her murderer. She said in an article, We believe that someone had to have seen what happened. She couldn't have just gone to the store, made her purchases, and headed back to school without anyone other than the clerk seeing her. There had to have been someone around outside who saw her get into a car. The lack of witnesses would support that she was not abducted from the street. Meredith and her family believe the killer is still alive and that there is still the possibility of a confession. They do agree with law enforcement officials that her death is not related to the salesman who she helped send to prison. There have been no suspects or arrests made in the murders of Valerie, Julie, or Marie. If you have any information regarding these unsolved murders, you are encouraged to contact the Waverly Police Department or 
FBI Special Agent John Moeller. Were you one of those kids growing up that was obsessed with dinosaurs? Like, I mean really obsessed. You had to have the pajamas, the bed sheets, the books, the little figurines, the decals on the wall. Then I have a podcast you need to check out. My friend Anthony recently released an episode of his podcast called Highbrow Drivel, where he sits down with comedian Ahir Saha and paleobiologist Dr. Emma Dunn to talk about all things dinosaurs. Check out his podcast at highbrowdrivel.com or listen where you get your podcasts. He's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Overcast, Castro, iHeartRadio, Pocket Cast. This guy is everywhere. So be sure to check out his episode all about dinosaurs. There might also be a subject that he's covered that you absolutely love. Vermont, Wilfred King III. Wilfred was a 37-year-old man that disappeared on October 24, 1980, after he was last seen by his father leaving his residence in Essex, Vermont, in his blue and white Chevy Blazer. He lived in a house that he built himself, and his parents lived next door. Wilfred and his wife, Diane, were in the process of a divorce, so the two youngest children lived with her while the oldest lived with him. A few years before his disappearance, Wilfred was struck by a vehicle outside of his home. He suffered severe injuries that left him in a coma for weeks, and he spent eight months at home recovering. His injuries left him disabled and in need of crutches to walk. In several articles that I read, it is mentioned that this accident is the reason that Wilfred and Diane separated and started their divorce proceedings, that it took a toll on their marriage. His father recalls that the day that Wilfred disappeared, he was expecting an important phone call and he wanted to stay home until he received it. Once he finished the phone call, he went hunting behind his house and then he left again to meet a friend around seven. Wilfred's parents asked him to take his son with him because they didn't want Wilfred going anywhere alone, but instead he decided to leave on his own. Hunters found Wilfred's crutches in a field just nine miles from his home a couple of days after he disappeared. They were stained with blood, and an article of clothing was also located close by. Roughly three weeks later, his Chevy Trailblazer was found abandoned and burned near the Oak Hill Gravel Pit in Williston, Vermont. Witnesses told police that they saw a man driving it just two days after Wilfred was last seen. Police did canvass the area, but no clues were found. Wilfred's estranged wife, Diane, was very uncooperative with the investigation. She initially agreed to take a polygraph, but then changed her mind. She told her two youngest children that lived with her to not speak to a police officer if they came around asking questions. She also started to sell equipment that he owned for his paving business and received around $11,000. In the aftermath of his disappearance, Diane moved into Wilfred's home with two roommates. According to her, the roommates damaged several things that Wilfred owned, including some of his paving equipment, a boat, and two motorcycles. In an article I read on charlieproject.org, the oldest child that lived with Wilfred, 
decided to move some of his father's items to his grandparents' house next door to keep them from getting destroyed. Diane consistently said that she was afraid of the roommates because they both carried guns. Both roommates eventually moved out, but not after going to Diane's workplace and smashing her car windows. In December of 1981, Diane began court proceedings to obtain control of the house and the property that Wilford owned. His parents had given him the land when he was just 19 years old, and he built that house himself. During that year-long court battle between Diane and Wilford's parents, his parents were awarded the house as well as everything that he owned, and Diane was forced to leave. Land in the Burlington Interval was searched in 1982 after police received inquiries and tips. Bones were found, but they were later declared to be from an animal. Police did find a pair of glasses, but they were never able to connect them directly to Wilfred. In 1983, a belt and a piece of a checkered cloth were found in Milton. The property was owned by the brother of one of the men that lived with Diane after Wilfred disappeared. In the missing persons report, his parents stated that he was wearing a checkered shirt when he was last seen. A well was also excavated on the site, but no clues were found. Diane then tried to have Wilfred declared dead in 1988 and took his parents back to court to try and obtain control of his house and everything that he owned. Her oldest son sued her to stop it. In the papers filed by the lawyer, the son believed his mother had something to do with his father's disappearance and death. He asked the court to use the family's property to set up a trust fund for himself and his younger siblings. The last known search was done in 1988 after police received information that led them outside of Vermont. No other specifics were given. Lieutenant Robert Yandow said that over a dozen people were interviewed over the years, but Diane's lack of cooperation slowed down the investigation, and eventually it grew cold. Wilfred's parents had a monument placed for him in the cemetery in the late 1980s. Wilfred was declared dead in January of 1994. Twenty years after his disappearance, the Burlington Free Press interviewed his parents. They were still searching for answers as to what happened to their son. They told their reporter that they believed Diane hired someone to kill Wilfred, but that there was not enough evidence to prove it in court. The oldest son has since reconciled with his mother and moved back into his father's house to raise his own family. No one has been criminally charged in Wilfred's case, but he is presumed to have been victim of a homicide. At the time of his disappearance, Wilford King III was only 37 years old. He was 5 foot 5 and weighed roughly 135 pounds. He had brown hair and brown eyes and he needed crutches to walk. He was wearing a checkered print shirt, a belt buckle, and a wristwatch. If you have any information about Wilford's disappearance, you should contact the Essex Police Department. Thank you for joining me on the third and fourth stop of the Cold Case Road Trip. Check out this promo from my friend at the Anomalous Fascination Podcast. Hello, friends. Take a dive into the unknown with the Anomalous Fascination Podcast. 
a new podcast where I research and discuss some of the most incredible and unexplainable phenomena, people, and historical events in human history. Episodes are packed full of incredible stories, theories, and mysteries, all in short, family-friendly, and easily digestible format. Prepare to be blown away by the mysteries of the universe, or, at very least, you'll be a lot more interesting at parties. To hop in, search Anomalous Fascination on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast app of your choice. And don't forget to follow the show at AnomalyPod on Twitter. Let's take a stroll, shall we?